Welcome to another edition of The Wake Up Call. I'm your host, Reno Munz. Super excited about today's episode. I'm going to sit down and talk to Noah Levine, uh, the author of Dharma Punks and Against the Stream, uh, Against the Stream Meditation Center, Refuge Recovery. He, his work has been super instrumental in my life, my recovery journey, and has inspired me uh, so much on the path. Uh, spiritual path or, or the path of recovery. I think of those things as synonymous terms or uh, the sim- same path for me personally. So to have this opportunity to sit down and talk with somebody who's been so inspiring for me, I'm really excited about it. So first want to uh, thank our sponsors and then we'll bring Noah on. As always, if you're watching live and you want to uh, say something in the comments, that kind of thing, you're more than welcome to do that. Want to thank our sponsors, Minds Dye. Minds Dye makes hand dyed uh, fabric and everything's custom. So, anything that you'd like to have made, she's pretty incredible. She's been a sponsor uh, of our podcast for a long time and a member of the community. You can check her out on Instagram at Minds Dye or on the Etsy store uh, at Minds Dye. Also, a big shout out to Seed Apparel. Seed Apparel makes uh, eco-friendly, socially responsible clothing that you could use for skateboarding, rock climbing, whatever it is you do. You basically could put these things in the ground and they would decompose. Um, so thanks a lot, Seed Apparel. You can check them out at theseedstore.ca or I am Seed on Instagram. Also want to say thank you to the people at nahung.net who raise awareness around the indigenous practices of the Sikh tradition. And uh, we're really thankful for their support. They're a new sponsor, and uh, it's nice to have them here as people find their way through the confusion of Kundalini Yoga. Um, If you want to know kind of like where did this stuff actually come from, that's a great resource. Go to nahung.net. And last, uh, Shakti Jewelry, who makes uh, beautiful adornments that you can get. She does custom work as well. You can check out Shakti Jewelry on Instagram or go to iloveshakti.com. And uh, that's it. That's all for the sponsors. Uh, we do the wake up call every Wednesday and Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific time. Um, we've got a great guest today, as I mentioned, with Noah. And then um, Adam Blake, who is in the band Shelter and is currently in the band H2O. Uh, we're going to talk on Saturday at 10 a.m. So we're getting uh, we're getting a lot of great punk rock content this week. So I'm glad to. Uh, I'm super excited, super blessed, and glad to be here with all of you. And uh, let's let's bring Noah on and get it started. All right. Good morning, Noah. Hey, Reno. Good to see you. Glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, so good to be here with you, too. I just noticed somebody down below saying, so stoked to be here this morning, two highly relatable and inspirational people. We can roll with that. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, I was talking about, you know, when I first read Dharma Punks, I was reflecting this morning uh, on that. And I thought, oh, if it was 2003, I must have read it like right when it came out. Um, And and I didn't know I I didn't know about your uh, your father. I didn't know about your work. I didn't know anything except for I had seen somebody who was tattooed. I saw the word punk, which uh, resonated with me. You know, I grew up around hardcore and punk rock and graffiti culture and that kind of thing. And uh, that book was just super inspiring, as I told you um, behind the scenes here, that it took me a while to get sober. A lot. I mean, probably another 15 years after I read the book. 
But uh, I've kept that book with me. I've traveled with it as I move through the different practices and the different things that I've done in my life and always wanted to connect with you. Um, And today's the day. So um, I'm really excited. Brad, yeah, happy to be here. And so, you know, so stoked that, you know, having written that book, having never written anything before, and, you know, just that intention behind it was, um, you know, if I can do this, other people can do this. And and also that reframe, I know when I started to get into um, recovery and, and spiritual practice, I felt like such a, like, sellout because I thought spirituality was so fucking lame and uh, you know related to religion and um and then coming to find out like oh actually this is rebellion and you know this is this is going against the human tendency and and so then to be able to reframe that and say like hey here's my experience of you know kind of like i feel like that book has two messages like here's like recovery is possible right that's a core message there and then also Spirituality doesn't have to be lame. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. I I definitely had like this relatable experience of in my early days being like, okay, I want to, I'm interested in like Buddhism and Eastern philosophy. I'd read the Dharma bums by Jack Kerouac. That was pretty instrumental for me and going like, well, where do I do that? And I remember signing up to go to a Tai Chi class because I didn't grow up around this stuff. I don't know where to start. And I liked the like energetic element of the Tai Chi class, but what I, I felt so out of place. Like I was like, a teenager and there was just all of these old people and like doing this energetic work and then just like complaining about their lives and not to be too judgy but it was such like a far cry from what I was doing in my life and and uh, I remember I had a, a family friend who saw that I had some interest in spirituality and he would take it's interesting too because he was a practicing Christian but very open-minded and he would take me to this museum in the city where I grew up and uh, I would just spend hours like looking at the Buddhist statues and reading stories about the Buddha and and just spending hours doing that but I remember going with him and like kind of like hiding or in disguise like in the you know behind the newspaper because I didn't want to see it's downtown didn't want my uh, friends from the punk rock scene and that kind of thing to see me hanging around with this like old man at a museum looking at uh, Buddhist you know statues and that kind of thing and then when I read in your book about you pulling up to the retreat center blasting NWA I was like okay this I'm in good company here yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was a trip in the you know '80s and '90s, uh, punk scene to get involved with recovery and and practice. Um, there wasn't a lot of awareness about spirituality, you know. Other than you know, in in, in I, mean, I got into straight edge uh, early in the in the '80s, in the late '80s. You know, um, when I got sober, I got into straight edge, and then you know, when youth of today. Uh, became shelter and 108 and you know so there was some Indian kind of Hindu hardcore um, coming out and I liked it and I liked the the Krishna vibe on some level um, but you know as we'll talk about like my my leanings towards non-theism and uh, kind of you know it was also like okay well 
yes, I like a lot of the Indian stuff and there's a lot of similarities. And even with the 12 steps or like you were saying, even with Christianity, there's a lot, there's a universal truth mm -hmm. on, you know, that, that's, that's connected with all of us. But, um, you know, what meaning we assign to things, may, you know, really kind of can shift the, the, the path and the way that we practice. Yeah, for sure. Um, I wondered about like, you know, for because there will be people who are watch the wake up call who really don't know, like who you are, or what your story is, except for the fact that I think you're great and your work is awesome, <laughs> you know, but do you want to, can you give a little like, you know, brief look at who you are, how you got to where you are and the work that you do? Sure. Um, you know, I, I, I was born into a family of, um, you know, spiritual practice on some level. My father, Stephen Levine was one of the early kind of, um, you know, trailblazers off offline earlier, we were talking about Alan Watts. And so my father was like in, you know, Haight-Ashbury in the sixties and publishing this, this like uh, psychedelic, you know, consciousness magazine. And he's all these stories about how he was hanging out with uh, Alan Watts and how he was, uh, my father was teaching meditation on death row at San Quentin in the seven, you know, like, um, wrote books, you know, connected with and wrote books with Ram Dass. So like I was born into this family where like Ram Dass was my gay uncle, <laughs> you know, my father, was, my father was doing, you know, all of this Dharma stuff, you know, Jack Cornfield and Joseph, you know, all of these kind of Buddhist people were around. Um, so I was born into that, but also like I was born into a lot of suffering. You know, my parents were divorced early. My mother was struggling with addiction. My father was seemingly more interested in being a Dharma teacher than a father. Um, you know, all of that angst, which led me to early suicidal ideation. And also being taught about reincarnation. From early, me being told like, hey, you don't really die. <laughs> Death isn't really death. Death is just like a continuation. And in my mind, I was like, oh, cool. Well, this family sucks. These hippie, you know, drug addicts, you know, like they're not paying close attention, you know, and I'm suffering. I'll get out. I'll kill myself. You know, and then, you know, in short is rather than killing myself, I started getting loaded and I kept getting loaded, um, you know, from like seven years old until 17 and with a bunch of felonies and in and out of juvenile hall, at 17 years old, I got sober. And, you know, kind of hit the bottom and was like, what am I going to do from here? And my dad said, well, why don't you try meditation? And I said, okay, but why don't you get me a fucking lawyer instead of your hippie meditation bullshit? Like, I'll do it. I'll do anything. But um, I don't really want to spend the rest of my life in prison. And I had that shift internally where I took responsibility. I was like, you know, I've been blaming the hippies and the cops and society and the system for, for my suffering. And they all have a part <laughs> in that. <laughs> but actually, I, it was my response. I was the one reacting. I was the one committing the crimes, taking the drugs. And that personal responsibility shift um, and starting to practice meditation was the game changer. And sitting in juvenile hall meditating in 1988, um, you know, I had a powerful, uh, you know, not 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 like a big bright light powerful experience, but just like a subtle 
powerful realization, oh, there's hope. There's hope if I can train my mind to, in the beginning, just ignore and stop obeying my thoughts and feelings because they're trying to kill me. And if I can just redirect to the body, back to the breath, uh, you know, replace those thoughts, then there's a little bit of relief there. And so anyways, I got, you know, my first couple of years were half-assed meditation practice. Like you were talking about embarrassed, like I'm from the streets. I don't meditate, but it was like, I got fucking, I got no choice. You know, and I started going to AA and, um, and I, you know, I met some cool people in AA and I still, you know, go to 12 step. I'm still involved 33 years later. I've been sober ever since then. But that core message of you're powerless and only a higher power and God this and God that and him and all, you know, I was just like, this shit doesn't make any sense to me. This is some, you know, this is the, this is the stuff that those ancient tribes made up you know, that we call Judaism or we call Christianity or Islam or Hinduism or, you know, Sikhism, all of that. This is like ancient mythology that the, those folks like assigned all of this meaning to external forces because of the insecurity of the human condition. And I was like, I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not a sheep herder, you know, 5,000 years ago going like, well, it must be God, you know, <laughs> like that's why this is happening. Um, Anyways, you know, as you know, I'm a, a pretty diehard atheist, you know, and and was when I got sober. And then I became open minded through the 12 steps. And, you know, I chanted Hare Krishna with, you know, with the, the guy, the Shelter 108 crew. I, um, you know, I did Sufi dancing. I, you know, I've done a bunch of Kundalini yoga. Like I did all of that stuff. And, you know, a kind of I think you've done this, too, uh, a, a kind of systematic study of religion and of the direct experience of like, oh, what, what's chanting feel like? What's this yoga practice feel like? What's, you know, and what's the philosophy and how does it make sense or how does it not make sense? I'm a pretty rational, uh, you know, I've got that rational male, you know, affliction. And <laughs> 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 uh, and Buddhism just like, as I, you know, that technique I was doing and it just made more sense to me, which was a big departure from my father and, you know, his mystical new age philosophy. And I really landed in Theravadan Buddhism. That's what really makes sense to me. Here's the causes of suffering, the way to end suffering, you know, this, this humanist psychology uh, that says, you know, human beings are fucking powerful. We have the ability to end, to cause all of our own suffering. And I knew that because I had caused myself so much suffering. And we have the ability to end our own suffering through our own mind and heart training, you know, through discipline and renunciation. And, and so all of that, you know, kind of led to deep practice, lots of retreat practice and pilgrimage and, you know, all through my 20s, you know, traveling and going to retreats and, and then in my early 30s, you know, writing Dharma punks and saying like, this is what's making sense to me. And then following that up with writing uh, Against the Stream, which was kind of like, here's the Buddha's teachings and why it's so much a form of rebellion and, and a radical revolutionary uh, spirit. 
And then Heart of the Revolution, my third book about compassion and forgiveness. And then my community grew and grew and grew. And I had a place in San Francisco. And then I moved to New York and had a huge community there. And then I moved to LA and I had a huge community here. And so many people were coming to me saying like, I wanna use this for recovery. And for years I had to say like, yeah, you can come sit and use Buddhism and, but also go to 12 step, like, because you need fellowship, you need other addicts. I found myself in this dilemma where, um, you know, the Buddhists weren't really my people. Like you said, you know, like I was going to retreats and I was hanging out with, with all, you know, and it was my dad's friends. And it was, you know, it was these, it was, there was no, I wasn't mirrored. There was, nobody was young, nobody was punk, nobody was tattooed, super upper middle-class white bourgeois scene in the Western Buddhist world. And I was just like, you know, these aren't, these aren't my people. In recovery, my people, you know, in AA and NA and, you know, these, these are, these are the people who are going to listen to Motorhead with me. They're not going to meditate with me, but you know these these folks over here in the Buddhist scene. I love the philosophy; it rings true. The practice, the direct experience, rings true. But they don't understand addiction. You know, most of those teachers, like we were talking about, Alan Watts, Jack Cornfield, Ram Dass, my father, they're all drinking and using drugs. Like you know, they're not even practicing the fifth precept. And, you know, I'm over here going like, I have, you know, fifth precept in Buddhism is abstinence. Stay sober, whether you're an addict or not. Anyways, I know this is long-winded. I'm going on. So eventually I just went, uh, okay, I got re- to create a Buddhist recovery thing. And that's what uh, gave birth to, to Refuge Recovery um, about 10 years ago. And now, you know, there's Refuge Recovery meetings all over the world. You know, the book came out and the organization has just been growing and growing. Yeah, thanks. And long-winded is okay. People, lo- people love that. So, you know, <laughs> that's why you're here, to be, to be long-winded. <laughs> um, I remember one of the things also, I'm, I'm, this is just like reminiscing and then we can just travel through time or whatever, but... I do remember reading also in your book your connection to uh, Russ Rankin from Good Riddance, and that really spoke to me too because I love that band. I could sing along with every song. I mean, I'm as far as like hardcore and stuff comes. Like I said, I went to school in the '90s, so I was kind of catching this second wave, which was Good Riddance. Really, like through Good Riddance, I found out about Minor Threat and that kind of thing, and Straight Edge, and um, even you know. He's a pretty uh, devout animal rights guy. And um, I, I think in the book you were saying he kind of was instrumental in the early part of your um, recovery. And I, I always thought like, oh, this is like my lineage in some ways, right? Like uh, Good Riddance, I learned a lot about, um, you know, taking care and compassion and and through s- screaming. I mean, that song Waste that they have is so intense. I love it. Um, and, and recently they came, they did s- some stuff up here in Canada where I live and I went to like a p- couple of dates with some friends and just went and saw them here, there and everywhere. And it, it was amazing. And being there and screaming along, like it, it feels like, like Darshan or, or like being with the lineage for me. And I just wondered if you talk a little bit about just for my own selfish <laughs> reasons, your connection to Russ and good riddance, and you could throw some hardcore in there if you like. 
you know, um, when I wandered into AA meetings, for, you know, recovery meetings, my own free will, um, back in the, you know, early, late 80s, um, I, there was one punk rocker in the room, and it was Russ. And, and you know, we both had, you know, our, our leather jackets with the studs and the band names on them. And, and we just instantly, and, and straight edge, you know, and he would just instantly, and good riddance didn't even exist yet. I think they, good riddance was originally like, they were like jamming at parties and like playing punk rock cover songs and stuff before they, you know, nice. did the, their first record. And, um, and we, there was just an instant connection. You know, we were like a couple of the only straight edge kids and in, in Santa Cruz and, you know, I, I talked to Russ yesterday, you know, 33 years later, like we're still, you know, connected and still sober and still, you know, listening to punk. And, you know, so many people uh, that were around the punk scene back then, you know, what a, like, you know, took different routes and, you know, whether you want to call it sold out or, you know, kind of became mainstream or there's so many people that talk about punk as like a phase that they went through. You see it in the spiritual circles too, of like, I used to be punk, but then I became spiritual. Um, and it's just like, like punk is spiritual. Like you're saying, it's a lineage of fierce wisdom, right? It's the voice of the first noble truth. Like there is suffering, you know, and it's expressing that like in, in such beautiful uh, aggressive, you know, vehement, you know, way. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm more of the late seventies, early eighties and like more hardcore. Like I, I, I'm a fan of good riddance. Their lyrics are great. Russ is great. You know, they're, they're, they're and they're a little poppy for me. You know, they're a little melodic. Like I, I'm not a huge melodic hardcore uh, fan. I, I want it harder. <laughs> Harder, louder, faster. <laughs> and um, but but there's definitely a place in my heart for that, you know, that genre um, of, uh, you know, intelligent hardcore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's kind of like even the experience of Buddhism, right? You kind of get in where you get in and then you have this wider view of like for me with the hardcore scene coming up is like, you know, I, I didn't see people who were, I didn't hear about like veganism. I saw we had food, not bombs back then. And like people, you know, punk kids out there like feeding the homeless. Like I wasn't really seeing that anywhere else from my peers. I heard about it from my parents' religion, um, you know, or you read about it when you got interested in, in spirituality, but seeing it practiced, that's where I saw these like really caring for other people happening was in the hardcore scene and but like i wasn't i was always sort of like straight edge was really cool to me but i was like but i can't do that like i would listen to minor threat and gorilla biscuits and just like get hammered and go and <laughs> get rowdy in the show but there was always like a part of me inside like an inner knower i like to call it that was like hey this is like you could do that like it, you would probably like it and then just being like oh well but everybody expects this of me or whatever and so um you know hardcore and straight edge has played an instrumental role in my life even though i wasn't participating then and now i kind of you know i'm often saying to people like i learned as much from ian mckay as i have from alan watts you know like there's no question about that 
and um, I'm really thankful. And I lean into that music still. It's funny because my partner, like she didn't grow up with hardcore in the same way. And anytime I'm listening to music, she's like, oh, God, will you please turn this off? But if I put the lyrics in front of her so she can read what's being said and didn't tell her what it sounded like, she's like, oh, yeah, this is great. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, just for fun. Um, So, okay, so um, I wanted to know, like, as far as your study in in Buddhism and and sort of like you know you're having these experiences with your um, dad and an older community and feeling like you don't fit in like where are you learning about the practices that you're doing and over time I mean I know I saw you were in Thailand which has a really like close uh, place in my heart my partner grew up in Thailand she lived there as a girl she can speak Thai and um, so I want to hear a little bit about that. I know that's jumping ahead, but I would love to hear like, who are you learning this stuff from? Where are you learning it from outside of, you know, your upbringing and those early days of feeling out of place? Right. So my, I was, when I was 19 years old, my, I said, okay, like I've kind of hit the wall with, you know, I was getting in trouble for graffiti. I was, you know, I was just, I sort of hit the wall. I can remember getting sober and being like, there's gotta be, like, I would be happy if, you know how the mind likes to say that? I'd be happy if, and it was all material, right? If I had my record collection, my, you know, whatever it will, you know, like adolescent desire system, the motorcycle, the low rider, the records, the, you know, the leather jacket, whatever it was. And then, you know, finding myself in trouble, you know, fighting, you know, gang affiliation, bullshit, graffiti stuff, you know, just miserable, sober, but angry and afraid. And, and I said, dad, like I, you know, I, I meditation is the only place I'm finding any relief. Uh, what, where, what should I do? And he said, go to this, Jack Cornfield retreat. Jack Cornfield um, is the founder of Spirit Rock Meditation Center in California in Marin. So I went to that retreat at 19 and it was like a three day silent retreat. Maybe it was five days. I think it might've only been three and it was so difficult and I was so like wanting to leave, but I heard the Dharma and, and it was like, you know, a lot of people, hundred people and, and nobody young like me. But I heard it and I was like, okay. And because they, he knew my father, there was a little nepotism there and they were a little friendly to me and encouraging. And there was a woman teaching that retreat with him named Mary who had a meditation group in Santa Cruz, California, where I grew up, where I was living. And so I started going to her meditation group every week. And then somehow, I think also again through my father, um, a few months later, they said, hey, there's this Buddhist monk named Ajahn Amaro who's gonna be doing this retreat. And we think you'd really dig him and go go check him out. And so then my second retreat, uh, I went and I met, a, you know, it was the first time I had met a Buddhist monk. And, you know, he's a, a white guy, he's an English guy, but he'd been a monk in Thailand for probably 15 years or so at that point. Um, and then was coming and was gonna open a, a center in, in California. 
And he really inspired me. And that, you know, seeing somebody who had dedicated their whole life, the robes, the shaved head, the begging bowl, that full renunciation. And he was leading this five-day course with a, with a nun named uh, Ajahn Sundara. And so like those two and the, the Theravadan, uh, you know, and it was connected, right? Because they're in this Ajahn Cha lineage in, in Northeast Thailand, Thai forest tradition, which also was where Jack uh, had been a monk. And, and so I just got so inspired and, you know, felt like he was my kind of heart teacher and, you know, really felt like, like, like I want to learn from this guy and, you know, just started reading the, the Thai forest stuff. And so Jack and Amaro became my, you know, kind of two core teachers for the last 30 years. Uh, lots of other teachers, Mary, I sat with for years. She was wonderful. Lots of other teachers. But also then I just was like, okay, let me do a deep dive into, you know, not only attending retreats and listening to Dharma talks, but, you know, okay, let me find out about this Burmese lineage of Mahasi Sayadaw and study that and the prog what's called the progress of insight. And let me read the suttas and see if I can make sense of the original uh, teachings and, and all of the Ajahn Chah stuff. And you know, being a Western spiritual person, you know, we, we get to read everything. We get to study it all, you know, so uh, the Bhagavad Gita. And, you know, I went ahead and read the, back in those days, read the, the Bible and the Quran because I was like, I'm pretty sure that I don't like Christianity or Islam, but I, I don't know. Let me read it. Let me find out what Muhammad was saying. Let me find out what this Bible is saying, right? Like, um. And, you know, so I studied, you know, I just, I've always been a voracious reader. I still am because I did a lot of time in juvie as a kid. Like I dropped out of junior high school. Like I was, you know, I failed, like not, you know, didn't have an education until I got sober later, but because you're sitting in a cell so much, all you can do is read. So I got a taste for reading <laughs> from being locked up. And so then I was, you know, a lifelong, like, I like to read still, like, I, you know, I know all these people who just like watch shows and, um, you know, scroll on Instagram. And don't get me wrong, I like to watch a show and scroll on Instagram, too. But I read every day. And I always have, you know, for the last 40 years. Um, so I just read everything. And, you know, and what a great, you know, generation to be born into where everything's available. So I read all of the Tibetan stuff and all of the Zen stuff and all of the Theravadan stuff and Alan Watts and, you know, Trungpa and all of those crazy Westerner, you know, like Dharma scoundrels, you know, that had like such cool things to say. You know, the beatniks that you were talking about. Of course, the reason I named my book Dharma Punks was because I was so inspired by Kerouac and that American adaptation of like, how can we do this and still be ourselves and not kind of do this like, I'm going to pretend like I'm an Asian monk. I'm going to be an American hitchhiker, right? <laughs> I'm going to be an American punker or whatever. Um, so yeah, just lots of study and you know, I went to graduate school for psychology and, and studied all of the Western psychology too and got a master's degree because I wanted to balance all of the Eastern that I was learning with like, you know, the scientific, psychological, how the human mind works, you know, to be able to understand both. And as it turns out, you know, a lot of that stuff uh, lines up with, with Buddhism, with early Buddhist stuff. Um, but, you know, science is still trying to catch up 
Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I One of the things I heard the Dalai Lama say that I felt really good about was that he was like, you know, if science disproves something that we practice in, in Buddhist practice, then we just won't do it anymore. And I just was like, okay, yeah, this, this makes sense to me. I can align myself with that because in my life, I've just, I felt like I've poured myself into spiritual tradition after spiritual tradition and end up feeling betrayed or let down or being the betrayer too. I mean, I'm not perfect. I've, I've caused harm. I've been, you know, out of integrity. I've done my best, but I, I just love this idea of like, let's be real about this. And if something doesn't work, we're not going to do it. And I heard this story um, about this teacher who's giving a Dharma talk and uh, to his students. And when he does, he has this cat that comes around and is like biting and scratching people. And so he puts the leash on a cat and ties the leash to the tree while he's teaching. And then when he's finished teaching, he lets the cat free to, and it doesn't cause any problems. And the people who come to listen are happy and everything's great. And then years pass, and it's like the next teacher in the lineage, and the next teacher in the lineage, and the next teacher in the lineage. And then one day after the talk, a student says to the teacher, you know, how come every time you give discourse, we have to tie a cat to the tree? And the <laughs> teacher says, I, I don't know, that's just the way it's always been. And I always love that analogy because I feel like I always find myself in these situations where I'm like, this is really resonating. This is about me discovering who I am. And then somehow it turns into this cat tied to the tree thing. And uh, that causes a lot of uh, confusion for myself and, and for others. I mean, it's the problem with religion, right? Like religion is, uh, is, is a huge problem in our world. And... Uh, you know, of course, it was meant to be a solution, and it was the sort of ancients' uh, desire for some structure and guidance and all of that, but it's corrupted every single time. And for sure, same thing in Buddhism, you know, um, every, you know, you can't find a religion that hasn't been distorted and corrupted. Uh, and, you know, and so when anytime we get too fundamentalist about things, it's like, you know, come back to direct experience how is this working uh, rather than what is the you know what are you told how you're supposed to dress or how you're supposed to bow or how you're supposed to you know yeah definitely i've definitely been learning that lesson <laughs> for most of this journey that i've been on i feel like with the start of covid it's been kind of for me and with yogi budget and all of that which we've talked about and a lot of my listeners know about that so we don't have to go too deep into it but what i have um been doing with this forced sabbatical or whatever you want to call it uh, i've been looking at you know 20 years of practice what actually worked for me like what actually inspired me and there's a lot of striving i think in those 20 years of like trying to be a good student trying to be a good teacher trying to put seats in the chairs trying to you know whatever it is uh, trying to be a good buddhist trying to be a good Sikh, trying to be a good blah 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 and man that all of that trying is exhausting but in that trying there has been experiences that has been transformative because uh you know i've been trying to get sober the whole time and it's working 
So now I guess it's just like an opportunity to sift through the bullshit. And maybe that's like what recovery and spirituality is about anyways. It's just sifting through the bullshit. And then underneath there is the experience of who you are or something like that. Does that ring true? Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, I just have this, you know, years ago you asked me to come do something up at Dharma, Dharma Temple. And yeah. I know we talked, we talked about it and I was, I was sort of open to it, but the, you know, part of the truth for me is that I was hesitant to do it because of your, you know, seek outfit and be, you know, cause you were wearing the uniform and I'm, I'm just skeptical of anybody wearing a religious uniform um, because for whatever reason earlier, maybe because I grew up with a lot of these teachers and I, you know, um, and I know how hypocritical they are. You know, I grew up in New Mexico, so I was close to the Bajan headquarters. And so like, and my father, you know, being kind of prominent in the spiritual world, he was like, careful for those guys the whole time. <laughs> you know, that's a really corrupt cult. You know, with filled with beautiful human beings, filled with beautiful seeking human beings who are looking for truth, but they're being misled by a corrupt leader, you know? And so I knew that from, from an early, early age. And I'm just skeptical, you know, and this thing about like, be a good Buddhist or be a good Sikh or be a, like, fuck all of that. Be a good person. You know, like, don't, don't be a good religious anything. Be a good human being that is honest with integrity and, you know, careful and honest and, you know, religion, all of them point us towards like, you know, be honest and be kind and, and all of that. But Anything that, that tells you how you have to dress or how you have to, you know, I don't mind being told how to act in some way of like, um, you know, I need some guidance in, in ethical behavior. You know, like, yes, we all have a moral compass, but also like being supported by in Buddhism, the five precepts would say, you know, don't create the karma of killing, you know, don't create the karma of lying, don't create the karma of stealing, of sexual misconduct, and also avoid getting loaded, right? Avoid drugs and alcohol, because they're going to make it harder to be ethical. They're going to delude your mind, they're going to put you to sleep. So I don't mind that sort of like, you can give me some good guidance. I like that Buddhism gives me some good guidance. But as soon as you tell me, telling me you know what what you know how to uh, dress and stuff like that I'm just like I'm fucking out I even had some western dharma teachers I don't know if you've run into this yet um probably have you know tell me like hey you know when you're up here at the retreats or teaching or you know at spirit rock like stop wearing so many big loud you know ftw you can't wear that in the dharma hall you can't swear in the dharma hall and I'm like you know what you're wearing Patagonia. How about that? How about no Patagonia in the fucking Dharma Hall? How about, you know, <laughs> how about you and your fucking Nehru jacket uniform, you know, trying to look Indian? Like, how about that of being against the rules? You know, like, we, we don't get to tell each other how to dress. This is bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I feel like for me, with the whole K... KY uniform and everything like that it was I kind of like in some ways I think that was necessary for me like I wouldn't advise people do that but I feel like I needed structure so bad in my life because of my struggles with alcohol and I was just w wasn't willing to let it 
go, as I had mentioned before. And then when I, I basically was like, there's this early morning practice that they do called Aquarian Sadhana. And it's like at four in the morning or whatever. And I was struggling. My daughter had just been born and I was struggling with drinking. And, and my partner basically gave me the ultimatum where she was like, look, I know you're like helping people out there in our community but if this drinking doesn't stop like right the second you can't live here basically and so uh she had gotten interested in kundalini yoga and so i you know i said okay well i'll do this early morning practice i won't drink i'll do the early morning practice waking up at 3 30 in the morning every day which is a big commitment for me especially at the time even now and uh, if i can do it for 90 days then i won't go back to a treatment center and we'll just go from there. It was kind of what we did. And so I did it for 90 days and I was sober on my own outside of a treatment center, like for the first time in my life. And then I kept going and I did it for nine months straight. And so what happened was the blessing was the recovery piece, but the challenge was, is that became like the life raft, you know, that like story about the Buddha saying, you know, you use the raft across the river and then some people walk around with the raft once they've got to the other side. That's kind of what I was doing. Like, I was like, it's this thing. And, and I learned a lot, you know, I pilgrimaged India and I did all of these, uh, incredible things that I always wanted to do and went to the, uh, Dharamsala and, uh, anyways, it was amazing and I learned a lot and created some community, but now on the other side of it, I realized I was like clinging to the raft and it was Yogi Bhajan's, you know, exploits that came to the surface and COVID that made me realize like, well, maybe I don't have to carry this raft anymore, but I still recognize the importance of the structure. And as you were mentioning in recovery, the importance of community, like these were the two primary things that were supporting me in, in, in also like meditation and all of those things. But the, if we just made really bare bones, it was about structure and community. And so, you know, maybe you don't need to carry the raft. And, uh, you know, at first it's kind of painful to put down the raft, you know, and I think that happens for people in AA and stuff like that too. Like they're clinging to the, like I've seen the person in recovery who's like you said, miserable or like smoking a ton of cigarettes and really like shitty to everyone, but at least they're sober. Um, and I was clinging to some form of identity. So it just feels like us being here, having this conversation is, is perfect timing because i've had the opportunity to really look at like yeah i love meditation yeah i love concentrating on my breath yeah i love the music that inspires me to you know be who i am um but the clinging to this notion that this thing gave me freedom it's like i've heard this from so many of my dear friends who are like kundalini yoga didn't do that for you you did that and i was so accustomed to like you know no, it wasn't me. I'm, I have to be humble. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of rambling now, but it, it feels no, I, good to. I know. I love, I love what you're saying. And I also question, you know, like, um, you know, part of that whole, and this is so common in religion and the, and, and even in 12 step of that, like, it's, a, it's not you, it's an external higher power. It's grace, it's blessings. You know, whether it's in the Kundalini Yoga and it's the guru, you know, this sort of like, you know, Satnam, whatever it is, 
It's external rather than empowering us to say, this is in us. We're doing the work. We're having the transformation based in our own actions, our own efforts. You got up for nine months and did that fucking practice. But you did it in a form like so many of us do where, you know, where then it's assigned to, it's like, it's like then you got the grace of, of whatever. And so to that, like that shit just never made any sense to me. Like grace of what? Like if you take positive action, you get positive results. Um, and it's, so it's always just driven me crazy, this sort of like, if you do something good, that's God. If you do something unskillful, that's you. And it's like, no, they're both <laughs> you. They're both yeah. fucking you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love that's that. That's will versus God's will. It's just like, this is such a made up, you know, delusion that humans have been walking around with for centuries. And it's just not true. Yeah. And it's definitely been something that has been used to manipulate um, folks. Right. I mean, that's going on today. And that, and I, in your, I was, I, I reread against the stream in preparation for this and, and it was talking about, um, I'm just going to open the book quick so that I, remember or maybe you'll maybe i'll just ask you but the idea i think it's part four where it's like defy the lies this is it defy the lies serve the truth beware of teachers and question everything i was like oh man that's so where i am right now like it was so refreshing to to read that because that's that's how i feel like i and this is something interesting to run by you this has been a recent sort of discovery for me where it's like i feel like i've gone through these like three stages of awareness or consciousness where it's like you're born into the world and you believe what the world sells you like whatever it is your parents your you know your worldview, and and then you come to this like awakening like the buddha you know there's got to be more to life than this and uh, so you challenge it and, and then I found, like, you know, you, you look for other people who have challenged it in some ways, whether it's, like, in music or philosophy or religion or something, like, some other way of, of seeing the world. And then you invest, when I say you, I'm talking about me, and then I invested myself in these things, like, you know, I want to know the people who challenged the thing and how they challenged it, and I want to know all the parts of it. And then now I'm in another worldview that is like this is the way it is and then i feel like now there's like that next question it's the same question of like who am i like i'm not all of this stuff this stuff just helped me help facilitate this asking of question or questioning everything and now it's like okay well let's you know go even beyond that that's kind of how, how i feel and and in some ways it's great because you can share oh somebody wants to know something that could help them in their recovery i could sh show them a little yoga or not i could show them a little meditation or not i could you know whatever it is just find some way to connect with people but the underlying message is like it's you question everything question me question the corruption in religion and politics and all of these things and know that ultimately what you're involved engaged in is like you know how do you just be yourself in relationship to all of this or, or, or something like that absolutely yeah you know I, one of the reasons i part of that's just my own authentic attitude <laughs> you know 
uh, of que questioning and defying and and wariness. Um, but also, like I saw when Dharma Punks came out, so many people were like, "Oh, I got so inspired," and then I went and started practicing in this Buddhist tradition. And and I was like, "Oh no, don't practice with them. <laughs> Be careful <laughs> over there." Like, that's not what I, you know, and I realize, oh, I'm in this place where I'm inspiring people, but then they're going in the wrong directions. <laughs> you know, oh, that's a dead end. That's a dead end. Like, don't get, don't, I, I didn't mean to get religious. Like, don't join that cult or that cult, you know? Uh, and not that I was telling you to join my cult either. Like, I feel like my, my cult is the anti-cult, you know? <laughs> Which is the sort of like, it's all in you, do it yourself, you know, here's the teachings, here's how to apply it, here's how to live it, be a good person, you know, don't be a religious person, be a good person, be a kind, wise, compassionate person. If Buddhism inspires you or Kundalini, whatever it is, inspires you to show up in a genuine, authentic way, beautiful. Um but I, you know, I, it's such a strange place to be where then you're inspiring people and, 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 and then you see them taking wrong turns down the dead ends. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, some of, some of me wonders if like, in some ways that's necessary, you know what I mean? It's not like encouraging that, like the buyer beware thing, I think is uh, a great point. But also, like, I, I can only speak from my own experience, and my own experiences is like, in some ways, you got to go down those dead end streets. I guess that's what a teacher is for is like, not more than a friend, not less than a friend that can kind of be like, well, I went down there before and didn't really work out that great. But if you want to, go ahead, you know, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, maybe. I mean, like I said, I can only. Like I'm such a, I read a, an Ozzy Osbourne quote recently where he said, I can't do anything in moderation, which I love. I tuned into one of your talks recently where you were warning people about the Buddhist teacher who tells you everything in moderation if you're in recovery, because that's leading to a relapse. And I was like, oh yeah. And then I, I had read this Ozzy Osbourne quote and I thought, oh man, that's so me. Like I'm like, oh, this kundalini yoga thing's really working. All right, let's put on the outfit and do everything. Learn to read the language, go to the pilgrimage site, do it all, and then when you're done with it, just be like, okay, this is what I'm keeping and this is what I'm not. Um, but there's a lot of pain in that process because you know people expect you to be that thing and you're like, this is a research project. I'm, put, I'm putting myself into it fully and uh, we'll keep what we can. But, you know, it's... Uh, I think there's something to be said about that addictive personality, if there is an addictive personality of just like putting yourself fully into something, but at the same time, being able to, without moderation, step away as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's that. I loved your image of clinging to the raft. And the thing is, is that when we've been clinging to something for a long time, uh, we become like, what is it? Like atrophied? Where it's like, and you, it's not so easy to just be like, oh, now I'm going to let go. Like, actually, my hand has become frozen shut. My mind, my identity, my, you know, like I've become so attached to it that like I'm kind of stuck. And it's like one finger at a time to let go. Like, oh, it's so hard. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
I feel you on that. I, I have uh, somebody here. I can bring it on the screen. Mike, he, he watches and listens uh, to the program. And he said that uh, earlier, he said that your books and your uh, the Against the Stream podcast have been a great resource in his personal journey. And then he says, would love to hear how Noah has been dealing with these challenging times over the last year. Has it impacted his practice in any way? Um, maybe more focus on loving kindness? Question mark. You know, I'm, um, I don't know if I'm the, really the best person to answer this. I mean, you're, you're asking me, Mike, so I'll answer it. But uh, I've kind of really enjoyed the last year, um, partially because, as you may or may not have known, I went through a lot of loss uh, like three years ago. And so I went into the pandemic without all of the responsibilities that I would have had a few years ago. And so I had kind of a quiet life anyways. I was just recovering from this big um, implosion in my community. And so I was like just meditating a lot and enjoying the quietness and, and, and easy to kind of let go. Um, I, you know, I didn't have much money anyways <laughs> going in. So it's not like I, lost my income because I didn't have much income. <laughs> you know, so I was just sort of in this situation was like, oh, cool, I get to spend more time with my kids. I get to practice more. Uh, you know, nobody's out on the streets when I'm riding my motorcycle around. I love that. You know, you know? <laughs> nobody's down at the beach when I'm riding my bicycle. Um, I didn't do the sort of shut in kind of thing around it. You know, we, you know, there was the stay at home encouragements. And so we didn't get to go to restaurants and I didn't get to teach my classes live. The transition onto online classes. Also, there's some a little bit challenging, but I kind of enjoyed it. Like I enjoyed learning something new. And in my community, it allowed my community, you know, all of the people that aren't local in Venice, California, where I live, to come to my classes every week. And so it was like, that was sort of a blessing. And and so, you know, you said more loving kindness and yes, like on for sure on some level, lots of loving kindness and compassion for all of the people suffering, all of the sort of fear, you know, that was go that is going on and has been going on um, and grief, you know, for the people who are, are dying from, from COVID. Um, but interpersonally, uh, I've really kind of, it's been a, a great year for me. I've, I've enjoyed it and and uh, you know just continue to do a lot of mindfulness a lot of loving kindness and forgiveness has been you know really core for me for a long time because because i came onto the path and into recovery with lots of resentments and then um, had this big betrayal in my community this false accusation that really destroyed uh, a lot parts of my community and so it's been a, a big forgiveness process and that's just ongoing and so this quiet year um, has been sort of, for me, like almost soothing, kind of to just settle into, I know how to be quiet, I know how to be alone, you know, like the Dharma taught me how to do that. Yeah, thanks. And thanks, uh, Mike, for the, for the question. That's great. Um, I wondered about like, you know, there are different people in, in my world who, well, let's just do a couple of for instances, just for fun. So here's the first, for instance, somebody is checking this out. They're interested in recovery work um, and they haven't really done any kind of like 
meditation or anything like that, but they want to, you know, maybe they've got a couple weeks sober and they're like, yeah, I'm interested in what you guys are doing. You know, what's your advice to per this particular student or person? Uh-huh. Um, I think that meditation is uh, appropriate right from the beginning. You know, I ran a treatment center, Refuge Recovery had a treatment center. Uh, we were teaching people mindfulness, loving kindness, forgiveness, while they're in detox right from the beginning. And like you did, you know, like you started like right, right in the beginning, you started that early morning practice. So it's never too soon to start mindfulness practice, meditation practice. Um, you know, in, in our form in refuge recovery, um, you know, go to meetings every day and there's a 20 minute guided meditation in every single meeting and it's all peer led and it's they're on Zoom or, you know, maybe maybe there's one locally to you. And, um, you know, meditation is a solution. You know, meditation is an intervention for the addictive, uh, you know, thought patterns and, and the reactive tendencies. So I say, you know, jump in with, you know, and, and do it. And, and also, it's just so important to, I, you know, from my perspective, to reframe that, you know, there's all these delusions around what meditation is, around like you're supposed to quiet your mind or you're supposed to experience stillness or it's supposed to be comfortable or something like part of what we're doing in meditation is just learn to fucking sit there and be uncomfortable learn to tolerate discomfort because your intolerance for discomfort is why you keep getting loaded <laughs> so until you can learn to be uncomfortable just fucking sit there it's okay if you want to get up don't get up sit there and be uncomfortable. Learn to increase your distress, distress tolerance. Um, that'll help you stay sober. So there's lots of level, right? And then we're training our mind with loving kindness and with compassion and with forgiveness. And in the beginning, when you're doing that shit, you're not gonna feel kind or compassionate or forgiving. It's just saying things in your heart and in your mind. But what we're doing is we're creating neuropathways of wisdom. And we're, you know, we're uncovering uh, a, a forgotten, a lost part of our own heart. So uh, do it is, you know, and, and for instance, do it. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. And then I was thinking about while you were saying that, like, what about, I mean, I talk to people on a daily basis who are like with am I allowed, like, you know, I'm really hurt by all of this Yogi Bhajan stuff. And so I don't really want to participate in that anymore, but the practices helped me or whatever the story is. And then the question is often like, am I allowed to keep practicing or am I, uh, you know, it's asking for permission, which ultimately they have to give themselves. And I think what's happening is, is there's like, because of the betrayal or grief or whatever you want to call it, then the person is feeling like frozen and they can't continue to practice. Or there's like um, resistance to anything that appears religious, even though it's not. I mean, you know, people have, like you said, there's misconceptions about meditation. You're talking about Buddhism. Even the idea of like, well, wait, you can be an atheist and a Buddhist, like if somebody didn't know what that was. Um, I wondered if maybe you could talk a little bit about like for somebody, for another, for instance, who is feeling a resistance to anything that appears that way, like what kind of advice would you give to someone who is having that, that kind of a struggle, but, you know, found that there is some be benefit to meditation. Is that clear? It is. It yeah. is. And it's, um, it's sort of easy for me to talk to because I can completely relate and 
you know, I, I was totally and completely betrayed by Jack Cornfield, my teacher. Um, and, you know, in an intentional and malicious way that caused me and my uh, community a ton of harm. And some of the people in my community and one very close friend of mine, um, you know, kind of came to me and like, how can I practice Buddhism? How can I even practice? Oh, did we freeze? I can still hear you. Can you hear me? You. I'm still oh, here. Okay, yeah, okay. I could still hear you. Okay. Um, you know, he came to me and he's like, how can I even practice Buddhism anymore if like these guys, your teachers are so full of shit? you know, like, and would cause this much harm to our community. And, you know, I was just really like, it doesn't matter what the teachers say, like, what's your experience of the Dharma? What's your experience? Like, how does, how's this worked in your life? Um, you know, and, and haven't you heard me the whole time saying like, beware of teachers. It doesn't, you know, like beware of the lineage and of the structure, but trust your own direct experience of the Dharma. So, you know, it's, it's exactly that situation, you know, for me too, you know, I feel, I've felt like so betrayed by so much of the Buddhists, but not by the Buddha. <laughs> Right. The Buddha has been directing me in the, in, you know, guiding me in the direct, right direction the whole time. And so, how, you know, the practices, you know, the, for me, it's the Four Noble Truths. It's the Eightfold Path. Like, this is a perfect path for me. And so likewise with, you know, your friends in, in the Kundalini world, like if these practices are helping you, it doesn't matter how corrupt the guru was. You know, if your direct experience is, is that, you know, the Buddha said this, you probably know. He said, you know, it's called the Kalama Sutta. All of these people, you know, this village called the Kalamas and everyone was on the circuit, right? And and the Buddha came and gave a lecture, right? And then whatever, but, you know, the, the Sikhs came and gave a lecture and then the, you know, Vedantists came and gave a lecture. And, you know, finally they came to the Buddha and they said, you know, everybody's telling us that they're teaching us the truth and that it's the only truth and that it's the best truth, you know, but, but so who should we believe? And the Buddha said like, don't believe any of us. Don't believe me, don't believe them, but use your intelligence, reflect on it, try it, apply some of the practices. If the practices alleviate suffering and the causes of suffering. And this is important, right? Do the practices actually get at changing our relationship to pain so that we develop compassion for it? Or do the practices just allow us to ignore pain and create temporary hyperventilation head rushes, right? Because that's not freedom. Yeah, <laughs> hyperventilation, yeah. not liberation. <laughs> <laughs> it, yes. feels, it, feels good. it feels good but that's not right like and so that, that advice of like is it really getting you free from the inner causes of suffering which is clinging and aversion and self-centeredness and then when you know and the, the practices work in that really practical internal way then trust them no matter who's teaching it or not teaching it yeah i love i love that it brought up you know in the work that I do in my recovery world, this idea that, you know, addiction is anything that is repeated that produces negative results that you continue to participate in. And I think that can 
totally be applied to spiritual practices. Because how many people have I come into contact with, including myself, who are like berating themselves for not doing their practice or not showing up enough or not, and and then asking somebody like, is that way of thinking helping you? Well, no. Okay, well, why do you continue to participate in it? That's an addiction, you know? And so when you're saying like, when you look at the practice, like you do the practice because it is bringing you into that compassionate space, into that loving space. And if it's bringing you into a space of why you're not good enough or why you don't measure up or what blah, blah, blah. And I mean, who needs that in this world? I certainly don't. It, so that make that was that I was right there with you. That makes t- complete sense um, to me. What about somebody who I, I like doing these, like pretending that these are people out there, but then they're like actually me. <laughs> um, what about somebody who's like, you know, thinking like, okay, beware that you don't fall into another uh, following thing here, but. You know, I definitely, you know, you say the Buddha didn't really let me down, and I've studied as much as I can through the years, and um, but I don't know much about the, like, Thai traditions or, or the Buddha, or, like, what if it was somebody who was curious about these things and wanted to know, like, what could they study um, with a, you know, air of caution, where, where would be a good place to start? Or well, I mean, continue I, I, their I, study. Yeah, no, I mean, I like that because we don't we don't want to just because we have to beware and and uh, a little bit skeptical of teachers and traditions doesn't mean we don't want to still read the books, listen to the lectures. Like you know, it's just a healthy sense of skepticism and don't be too quick to, to you know to join. You know, <laughs> like kind of hang around for a while and watch the teachers right and listen to uh you know like uh, you know watch the actions and listen to like what is you know the people who've had long-term relationships with them right like it's tricky when it gets you know in some of the cults because you know the 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 followers are often protecting the the cult leader but um you know so for me like i had these two teachers ajahn amaro and jack cornfield and um, you know, totally feel like Cornfield was super unskillful in handling this false accusation against me and used it for his own benefit and, you know, took over my meditation center and, you know, like really like some some ugly things happened. Um, but Ajahn Amaro, the monk, had my back the whole way. And he was just like, hey, were you unskillful? And I was like, yeah, I was a little unskillful in some ways. He's like, okay, take responsibility for that. He's like, what about this? I was like, that, that part's not true at all. He's like, okay, if it's not true, it's not true. You have your karma. And so, you know, continuing to listen and, and like, so I've had this 30 year relationship with him and so far, totally trustworthy. But also, you know why trustworthy? And I hate to say this, but it's partially true. It's just like, he's trustworthy because he's, you know, he's a monk and he's actually got no financial interest in, you know, there's no, I mean, part of, part of what happens is when this becomes money and business, it's one of the things Cornfield said to me, he's like, you've become bad for business for my establishment that I've built. And I'm like, wait, Buddhism is a business. It's an establishment. 
Like, I thought we were in this for service. I thought we were in this to wake up and help other people wake up. Oh, you're, this is about money to you? And he's like, it's about money. And so Amaro is like, it's not about money. Like you live in a monastery, you're a monk. It's not about monastery, it's not about money, <laughs> you know? Um, so that's also one of the things, you know, like being careful for where is this a sort of like financial, you have to pay for it rather than it's freely offered. It's freely offered. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting challenge that we have to face, isn't it? Where it's like, I mean, I noticed this with the Sikhs that I know. It's like, you know, there's rich history there where some of the writings have not even been translated into English yet. It's a relatively new uh, tradition. And then I have friends who are, you know, doing their PhD studies in Sikh history and that kind of thing. And there's this idea that there shouldn't be any monetary exchange for Gurbani or the scriptures. Um, but at the same time, you want access to this stuff and you kind of put yourself into this difficult situation where you're like, we want the thing, but we don't want to pay for the thing. And so therefore, the person who is going to do the thing can't afford to do the thing. And then you're sort of at, at a loss. And then it's even with what we do. It's like, okay, we, we're helping people. I mean, at Dharma Temple, when I say we, we're, we're, we're providing a space for people to experience recovery and to be engaged in uh, healing practices. And, you know, we have to pay the rent and we have to, I mean, I don't have enough time in my life as a parent to like work for Amazon and run my center so that I can get a paycheck so that I can offer the, you know what I mean? So it puts you in this interesting dilemma where it's like you're providing something of value you want it to be accessible for everybody, but you also want to be able to do it because if you're not able to do it, I mean, this is what I've come up against even during this pandemic. It's like, I, I it would be great if I could just run recovery meetings, mentor people, teach courses and not have any monetary exchange, but that just wouldn't work for my family and it wouldn't, well, you, know, I, I, I you know what I mean? I don't want to. I totally know what you mean because I've been, you know, in that dilemma myself for decades. Um, and I'm not in any way against monetary exchange. It's just having a balance about it. It's like, yeah, of course we have to pay our rent, the meditation, you know. And so anyways, the way I've found my way with this is, you know, everything that I've created, um, you know, in the Dharma world has been nonprofit. And the classes that I do have been by donation. And, you know, and so then there's some fundraising and people, you know, make donations. And But I, I've never taught my classes that I've been teaching for over 20 years for a fee. It's always like everybody's welcome. And if you can afford to, to make a donation, please do make a donation. If you can't afford it, you're always welcome here. And so not getting into this fee for service structure, because it's the same thing in Buddhism where it's like, this stuff is priceless. Like you can't charge for this stuff. But then we live in the you know capitalist world. So like, if you want to write a book, yes, people have to buy the book and there's an exchange there. If you want to come to a retreat, it's going to cost us this much to put on the retreat. you got to pay that, then make some donations to the teachers. So there's a mixed model where, hey, I'm not an anti-materialist. In that situation, I was pointing out that the monks, you know, it is nice to have those full renunciates, the full renunciates that have no, there's no competitiveness for students or for, you know, any of that stuff. So yeah, there's something about that integrity of the monastic life 
where there's no financial. But for us, we're not in that realm. Like, you know, we have to make a living, you know, and the students, and if, you, if we're in integrity, hopefully the students are quite happy to support us. Right. Yeah, exactly. And there is the integrity piece of the labor. Yeah. Right. And the integrity yeah. piece of the lay person too, right? It's like, you know, you can be, we want, we actually, the way our world works, we kind of need people who are in positions of um, earning and exchange who are operating with integrity because look at, look at what else is out there. I mean, and, and that's I want kinda... my, I, you know, like I want teachers to be well supported. You know, I want teachers to be able to go on their own retreats. I want them to be able to take vacations with their family. You know, I want not to get too political here, but you know, like the, there's all of these attacks. I was just like listening to that attack on the woman uh, co-founder of Black Lives Matter. And I like, she's being attacked for buying a house. And it's like, I want her to have a house. I want her to have abundant, you know, <laughs> like what the fuck, you know, like yeah. what's wrong with people having, you know, buying a house. Um, you know, like I want that for people that are doing good work. You know, I want to be supported like that. I want you to be supported like that. You know, Jack, like I want him to, he's had, has had a, a, a ton of abundance. Him sort of like clinging to his abundance because a false accusation against me might be bad for his business. That's a lack of integrity, right? That's, that, that's not, you know, that's not freedom. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I'm with you. And, and I've been with you the the whole way. It's just definitely something that I see the problem there. And, and I think that's just the nature of the systems that we operate within in the societies that we live. And it's like, how do you show up in integrity in relationship to that? And that's where, that's why you do the practice that you do. That's why you share the practice that you share. Because, you know, every day is life is suffering. Like you just wake up in the morning and just think like, holy hell. Like as a parent, I find myself constantly being like, what was I thinking? Like <laughs> bringing a child into this mess. But then there'll be these other moments where it's just like, oh yeah, you know, I have this unique opportunity to learn from this being about how to be in the world. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be in recovery if I didn't have a, a child. That wasn't my my path. Like for me, it was like, I want to be a dad. And so she has been a great teacher in my life about recovery, even though I look out at the world and I see the pain and suffering and sometimes think like, what the hell is the point? You know, and then you'll have, because of my commitment to the recovery, you'll have somebody who's like experienced six months of re recovery for the first time ever since they were like 12 years old. And you think, okay, this is awesome. This is worth it. This is why I'm here. And, uh, you know, the suffering is is constantly present. And I guess that's what resonates so deeply about what the, the Buddha gave to us is. And I think about hardcore in the same way. It's like the world fucking sucks. There are major fucking problems. Now let's do something about it, you know? And that's kind of like the hardcore ethos and that's how it relates so uh, closely to Buddhism. No, absolutely. And I, you know, I'm also having a couple of kids and um, that same, I'm, I'm with you in that reflection on like, okay, what kind of a world, uh, you know, are we leaving behind with uh, global warming, climate change, and all of the political ongoing ignorance and racism and confusion in this world? Um, I read this quote from Bob Thurman, you know who Bob is? The you know, yeah, I love he, him. He's he's like a bit like Yoda or something like that. 
yeah, yeah. the way he talks. I mean, yeah. At one point, he said, "I think that I might have put this in one of the books, maybe against the stream or one of the books." But he um, he said, "Okay, he's being interviewed. And he was like one of the first Tibetan Westerners to, uh, you know, ordain with the Dalai Lama as a monk. He, you know, taught at Columbia, uh, you know, religious studies for." 20, 30 years. He founded Tibet House, did all of this like crazy political free Tibet work. He's done all this great work and he was being interviewed. Um, and the, te- and the, the interviewer said, you know, what do you think is the most important? What's your legacy? Like, what have you, you know, is it the Tibet House? Is it the relationship with the Dalai Lama, the, the, all the students that you taught? And he said, no, parenting. Parenting is the most important thing I've done with my life. He's like raising wise children that will be able to carry on, you know, the wisdom that I've been trying to develop in my life. In this world where people are born into ignorance and usually stay in ignorance, if we have the ability to raise kids that that know the truth and know about karma and actually, hopefully, now this is the tricky part, that our kids have enough suffering to motivate them to find freedom, right? And that part of like what a lot of our generation are doing is we're coddling our children so much, trying to protect them so much. It's like the Buddha's parents trying to protect him from seeing the reality of the world. Now, I think that this year, COVID, although it's gonna be very difficult for a lot of people, it's also waking a lot of people up to like, whoa, my mind is difficult. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Maybe I should do something about it. Maybe I should learn to train my mind. You know, and and I know, I don't know how your kids are, but my kids are a little bit like, yeah, meditation is dad stuff. But when they get stressed out, when they can't sleep, they say, dad, will you do a meditation with me? Of course, you know, seeds are getting planted. Yeah, for sure. And I, I'm with you, the parenting thing like that what you said about Bob Thurman, that is definitely, I mean, that is your, your legacy. And I feel like even doing stuff like this, it's like, you know, talking to people that inspire you and, and letting people in on that conversation, um, is huge. And then also the community piece, it's like, yeah, we just do what we can with where we are. And I think, you know, I'm just in so many ways, like just staying a student is such a big one too, is like, you know, I've had to really check myself over the past five years of like, I don't want the responsibility of like knowing everything or knowing the answer to everything and, and looking out at the world. Like one of the things that really makes me angry right now is like, you know, we have politicians who will say like, oh, well, you know, a year ago, or no, not a year ago, they'll say like, I've never said once that masks are, are are ineffective and everyone should be wearing a mask or whatever. You know, this is a happen in Canada. But now we live in an age where you can go back to a year ago and hear them saying exactly what they said they never said. And the problem isn't is not so much the like, you lied and whatever. The problem more is like, just admit that you made a mistake or that you don't know, like that's the big one, I think. And even in recovery too, it's like just admitting that there's a problem is the beginning of like the healing. But if you can't admit that there's a problem, then like what? We have nothing to work with. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. Yeah, the lack of honesty and integrity and, and humility. I like what you're saying, you know, and that kind of so important for us all to learn to be quick to take responsibility and be like, oh, yeah, was I wrong? Yeah, I'm wrong all the time, <laughs> right? Like, no, nothing worth clinging to, like, you know, trying to be right all of the time. Like, no, was oh, I yeah. unskilled? Yeah, totally, I've been unskilled a lot. Yeah, it's exhausting to try and be right all the time, isn't it? I mean, like how are how what are the quality what's the quality of your relationships if you're busy trying to be right all the time? They don't last long. <laughs> yeah, nobody wants to be around nobody wants to be around you and generally I think eventually you don't want to be around anybody either because you're so, you know, it's much easier to be right when there's nobody nearby. Yeah, I saw my father do that where, um, you know, he ended up having this very isolated life because even his colleagues, you know, like I'm right there, you know, like this and that narcissism that's just like so painful, you know, and you really separate yourself from each other rather than being like, hey, we can have big disagreements, but still, you know, still connect. Yeah, I think that's a huge one in our world today, right, where we've been conditioned to like if the people around us um disagree with us then we should be afraid of them and if the people don't completely agree with us then they're against us like it's just it doesn't make any sense i i love listening i'm like such a music nerd but i love listening to you know stories about punk rock and what it was like in the old days and different scenes and and something that, you know, around the time of in the 80s, like when when in the times of Minor Threat or, or the D.C. scene and, and that kind of thing, or even in California, like you hear stories about how it wasn't just like one type of music or even like punk rock being more of like an attitude of like outsiders and people with different ideas coming together before it became so uniform. And it's just another thing that happened with religion where it's like okay i want to be different like i love hearing ian mckay saying you know hearing punk rock so he wants to be different he already feels different because he just doesn't drink or take drugs so he feels like i'm going to be accepted in this arena because i can just be myself and then you go into that arena and people are like no no you can't we're different but we're different in this way not that way i wear this uniform (laughs) And and if you wear this uniform, you're a poser. Not only not only not only do you have to conform, but we're gonna tease you for conforming in the beginning. Yeah, that's it's just in some ways you think like this is just maybe a part of being human or or, or something like that and learning to think for yourself. I mean, that isn't that. Isn't that what religion is ultimately trying to promise for the people who started these religions or the rebels, um, you know, whether they're in music or philosophy or spirituality? Like, isn't that the whole point is that, like, be yourself no matter what? And then people catch on to that and try and market it and sell it to you. Like, no, no, because I've experienced that like so many times. I know we're coming to the end of our time here, but I've uh, experienced so many times where it's like, kind of the message you're getting is like be yourself challenge the system and then you're also being kind of like side served this like as long as it fits within these confines it's so problematic like it's a paradox i guess i mean i don't want to go too far down a kind of 
nihilists, you know, uh, wormhole here, but it does start to, at some points, kind of feel like, you know, human beings are just inherently untrustworthy and that where there is, you know, where humans are, there's going to be power struggles and there's going to be corruption and there's going to be ignorance and, and we're going to start oppressing each other. And, and it's fucking, unfortunately, the reality. And, and it's, and it's, and it's so sad because like you're saying, the spiritual scene is supposed to be those of us who are trying to break free from that normal human ignorance but we bring our human ignorance with us into the spiritual communities. And then we do the same fucking power struggles in the spiritual communities and the same, you know, and, and uh, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm not hopeless. <laughs> I'm not as hopeless as I sound. Um, but, it, you know, it's also one of the reasons why I'm a Buddhist, you know, and the Buddha's core teaching, which is like, you don't need there's no external refuge. Nothing outside of yourself is going to create the freedom that you seek. It's all in you and it's all your responsibility. Community is part of that, learning to communicate, learning to tolerate and forgive each other in this world where humans are, you know, intolerable at times. You know, that's part of our own work, our own, but that total personal responsibility for our own liberation. For our own recovery. Yeah, that's a that's a big one. I've I've been what's helped me kind of like put down the spiritual garb and reassess everything in my life and my process is uh, somebody said to me this is like as simple as it gets and I love I love it and it's almost like too simple to be true and they you know they they t said to me like they were grow grew up in a religious family and they turned their back on that and i don't want anything to do with that and then later on they realized there were aspects of it that they liked but their you know whatever it was that was their journey and they said the way that i navigate you know how i show up in my life now is i like genuinely ask myself do i actually like this about everything that they do and for me like I, it sounds so dumb to say, but like a light bulb went on where it was just like, oh yeah, <laughs> dude, like this is my, my life. Like the refuge is in me and it can be expressed in any way that I choose. And uh, then it just, you know, oh, for whatever reason, it was just, uh, it clicked. And uh, I think it I definitely... Like, I, I like that, but my own mind just kind of goes to like, you know, so many of the spiritual awakenings and like things that I've done, I haven't really liked, you know, like going into retreat for months in silence and periods of celibacy and periods of like, you know, a lot of the shit that I've done that's been so beneficial to me during doing it. I've been like, this fucking sucks. Like, I just want to masturbate. I just want to fucking, you know, like I, I don't want to be celibate, but I'm learning so much from, not satisfying my desires and not just doing what feels good. So I, I get what he's saying and there's wisdom to it. But when we get real serious about deep spiritual discipline, some of the stuff you're not going to like. Right. I think, you know, the, the, to differentiate here between the like, do you actually like it as opposed to do you appear to like it? Because you could say like your experience of all of that learning, like you probably do like that. I mean, yeah. you know. Afterwards. 
Yeah, afterwards, not while you're doing it. I'm not seeking. I'm not seeking a pain-free route. I, but I am saying I've experienced a shit ton of pain to get to where I am. So, but it's just the unnecessary pain, I guess. Um, I I have a tea teacher who was a, a Zen Buddhist monk for many, many, many years, and this reminds me of something that he said to me. He was a monk for 20 years in the Zen tradition, and he said his teacher would always say to him, Zen is doing whatever you want, and he said, like, that used to just drive him fucking crazy, and he would be like, I tried that. I did what I want, sex, drugs, rock and roll, the whole bit, and he's like, it doesn't make any sense, and then he said, now I'm looking back after you know 30 years of practice 20 years as a monk and i realized that all of the practice that i've done the simplicity of living quietly drinking tea doing my practice that's actually what i want wanted i just didn't know and that one always rings uh, true and is a great reminder to me because i think it is is like do I actually like this as opposed to like, is this bringing me temporary pleasure or something like that? Yeah. I like that. Deeper, deeper benefits. Different levels, different levels of liking. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, um, we'll uh, wrap it up here. I just wondered if there's anything that you would like the listeners to know about uh, you, what you're up to, how they can get in touch with you, um, any final thoughts. Uh, I'll just uh, open it up to hear from you. Um, What do I got to promote? Uh, I mean, refuge recovery, people that are interested in, you know, a meditation-based recovery process, we have meetings every day. They're on Zoom. The, the website is refugerecovery.org. Um, there's both in-person and online, but because of the pandemic, so many of the meetings are still online, which gives easy access to come and check it out. Um, so go to refugerecovery.org and check that out. My, I do a once a month uh, kind of lecture on refuge for them, first Thursday of the month. It's my nonprofit. And then I teach every week for Against the Stream. Againstthestream.com is the website. You can go on, get the link to the to the Zoom. Um, or if you're in Venice, come down and sit with us. The meditation center is now open. You can come in in person. Um, but Againstthestream.com, RefugeRecovery.org, those are the two things. I've got a day-long retreat in May, May 22nd, where I'll teach sitting and walking meditation practice all day. And people can sign up for that and also do that online if they want to. I've got some in-person retreats in the fall coming up. Anyways, people that are interested in connecting with me, check out those websites, get on those mailing lists, and then you'll find out about retreats and classes and stuff like that. And um, I think that's it. You know, thanks, Reno. I was happy to get to have the conversation and connect with you and I'm wishing you and your community and truth seekers and wake up call and, and all of that, uh, you know, um, wishing you well and wishing you success. Thank you, Noah. It means a lot. And I'm uh, super glad that you're here and I hope we can do something again and would love to come and sit with you in person. That's definitely on my bucket list. I don't really have a bucket list, but it's something that I would like to do before the big day. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, let's make it happen, and hopefully, I'll get up to uh, BC and get to do some some teachings and stuff, and see you. Yeah, we'd love we'd love to have you. I mean, everything is such a big question mark right now in my world that it's just like 
I'm just trying to keep connections with people who are doing meaningful work and uh, doing my best to support people out there who are who are struggling. And and I think there's a lot of that. And so you know, the more people who are on board, the more hands on deck, the better. You know, to help people put down their rafts as well once they've you know gotten off the ship, kind of thing. That's happening in my world. So. All right, Noah, thanks a lot for being here, and um, we'll uh, talk soon. I don't know if you have a minute to hold tight, or I, and I can just wrap this up and say bye, or do you need to run? You got a sec? No, okay, great. All right, I'll just wrap it up. I'll put you on mute here. All right, thanks, everybody, for watching. That was really, really fun and inspiring and insightful. Um, definitely, I was thinking about doing something uh, personally called Mindfulness May and really diving deep into my practice, especially with this being the end of the month and talking to somebody who's been there at the start of my journey. So I'll let you know on the show what that looks like. Please do stay tuned for our Saturday episode, 10 a.m. Pacific. I'll be talking to Adam Blake of Shelter, of H2O, somebody who was a monk in the Hare Krishna tradition and then went into the full-on rock and roll lifestyle and then decided that that wasn't for him either. Neither one was for him and uh, landed in, in recovery. He's been sober, I think, 19 years or something. So looking forward to chatting with him about his journey on Saturday and uh, we'll see you there. Um, if you want more information about uh, Noah's work, I put it in the chat so you can get access to uh, his websites. If you want to learn more about what we do at True Seekers, go to trueseekersrecovery.com. As always, if you want to contribute to the show, this is a community service. You're welcome to do that by clicking the uh, PayPal link in the chat. I noticed some of you have done that already. Thank you for that. Thank you for being a part of it. Um, we have meetings on Monday nights and Wednesday evenings for members. If you want more info, just let me know or go to trueseekersrecovery.com. Have a beautiful rest of your day, and I will see you all very soon. Peace.